Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again today. We are going to jump right into our study of the book of Philippians. I am teaching a, a class, a series, a 14-week series on, on this epistle of Paul to the church at Philippi. And uh, so I'm going to alter that format since we're not together looking at each other. And uh, and talk about this uh, this amazing book of the Bible, this amazing epistle of Paul to this church that he founded for several weeks here on uh, Relentless Truth. As as world events warrant, uh, I, I'll interrupt the series just like we did with the attributes of God in the fall, uh, as appropriate. But for the most part, uh, you can look forward over the next uh, many weeks to. Uh, to this topic. You're probably uh, familiar with this book and you know that it is about joy and, and uh, rejoicing. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, you're, you're going to really enjoy today, I think in particular, because I want to talk about some of the background, you know, as, as I, as I get older, it seems that I get called on uh, to use my my business, my banking experience, primarily to to mediate conflict or uh, challenging uh, situations. I can think of several uh, in recent years that have been uh, just difficult in human terms, uh, distressing. Uh, among the most difficult of of business uh, related, uh, ministry related uh, circumstances, and one of the lessons I've learned, not to be too negative, but one of the lessons I've learned is that I really shouldn't expect life to go smoothly in in human terms. That that people are sinners, and that the world the world is just not always a a harmonious place. So as I think of Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi, I, I try to imagine. I find myself trying to imagine him being in prison in Rome uh, he was he was uh, in a, in a room in a house apparently chained to a roman guard and they, their their shift would would change over every every 6 hours i think it was and and uh, and then and then he gets a visit from this guy named Epaphroditus um, there there's some other biblical names that are very similar to this one this is a unique character who 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 uh, might have even been the pastor of the church that Paul founded at Philippi at this point, and so Epaphroditus shows up in Rome from Philippi, where Paul is imprisoned, and 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 back then you know they they were word of mouth was a big deal, and so he's reporting to Paul that all is not well in the church that Paul founded. Now I I just right there right away when you when you think of the history here I, I I can't imagine Paul is captive in Rome. Remember when when he wrote Romans 
the book of Romans to the church at Rome, he had said that he longed to visit them. And then he embarked on his third missionary journey and never made it there. Um, and, you know, he was arrested and, and then, and then sent to Rome. If you read, read the book of Acts and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you can, you can read this account and you can kind of see his missionary journeys. You can kind of piece it together. And, and I, I just, but I just can't imagine hearing from Epaphroditus that, wow, Paul, all is not well. And, and so Paul then commences maybe, maybe with Timothy, Timothy's help, we're not, we're really not quite sure, but he, he starts writing this letter. And I say with Timothy's help, because he introduces himself in the beginning with, with, a with with uh, Timothy early in the uh, in the initial verses of of uh, the initial section of this letter to the church at at Philippi, so Paul seems to be aware, fully aware that that broken people, broken promises, and 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 things that break are in this world. He he seems to be reminding the church at Philippi about some truths that will sustain them through the brokenness of this world in this letter. And that's what makes it so beautiful for us. I, I can give you a small example. I'm sure you have examples in your life. It can feel like the, the world is, is kind of caving in on you when you, I remember being diagnosed with cancer 20 years ago. And I, I remember just feeling, wow, this isn't going right over here. That's not going right over there. But cancer is way worse than all those things. Am I going to survive this? I know, I know, many of you are suffering with various things right now, and you can, you can certainly relate. And then, and then there's the trivial that can feel also uh, like the pivotal can feel overwhelming, where we've had things around our house breaking, and I, I they they seem to, they seem to come in waves where. You know, you have one appliance that fails, another one is broken and needs repair, and our pool needed some work done, and we're in the middle of that. And and then, you know, something else is going on in the neighborhood with the HOA, and it can it can just feel uh, daunting, like like the the world doesn't uh, run smoothly. It's easy to see the brokenness in the world. Last week, I talked about Lloyd Austin, our Secretary of Defense, and. My my uh, uh, concerns about our government and the the government functioning at the consent of the government. I kind of whined a little bit, and that that that's in there too. And sometimes it just feels like it, it, we're dealing with the brokenness of 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 the world all the time. There are, you know, I, I'm certainly no Apostle Paul, but I can relate to managing conflict among among people and organizations with correspondence from afar. Now, now we have, you know, email and jets to, to commute and, uh, you know, get from one place to another. And we, it's just different than, than it was back then, but I don't have to stretch. You know, I think of some schools I worked with. I mentioned last week, the fact that I'm going to tell you the story of one in Illinois uh, in an upcoming episode. And I'm going to do that uh, relatively soon. Um, and, and and you'll you'll be amazed at the uh, I I don't know the bleakness of this particular situation at various times and yet and yet God worked and it it just it was just so dismaying even though we have Zoom and 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 other tools to use 
that, you know, I'm here in Florida, they're up there, and these things over the years were going terribly wrong. And, uh, but, but, but God was faithful. So we can all, we can all kind of imagine what, uh, Paul was, was, was going through. And we can all see gratefully how God has provided, uh, for us, uh, Christian again and again, even, even equipping us to communicate with, with people who, who aren't cooperative or, in my case, with with sometimes competing factions in an in a in an organization that calls itself Christian, um, to to try to help them uh, communicate and work well together, um, and and that this this is just similar to what what Paul is doing with the church at Philippi at this time. When you think of Philippians, you, you might think of Philippians four four. Uh, it probably comes to mind when you think of this book, Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I will say rejoice. That is the English Standard Version. Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Most people, as I mentioned, think of joy when they think of this epistle. And, and theologians uh, uh, are clear on this. And, and if you've studied ethics and ethical theories, you've, you've, you've run into this. There, there's a difference between happiness and, and joy. If, if you define happiness as kind of this temporal happiness, this temporary feeling of well-being, uh, joy is, 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 a, is a deeper thing. Happiness, many say, many uh, philosophers say happiness is predicated on our circumstances. It's conditional, it's temporal, and it is elusive. But joy is spiritual. It comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll say again uh, what I often say here, if you'd like more information, if that strikes you, if that bothers you, if that troubles you, if that's new to you, and you'd like to know more, I'd love to hear from you at john at johnwarrenmedia.com or go to johnwarrenmedia.com and use our contact form. I will correspond with you and try to tell you about the hope that lies within me uh, with gentleness and respect. It, it is a, a, a deep, joy is, a deep abiding confidence and contentment. It's not perfect in us sinners uh, but but it's 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 deeper than fleeting or temporary happiness. It's grounded in our unchanging relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it's it's just if you if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. I, I, if you know, you know. Um, it it is uh, it, it's not perfect. It's not without angst. It's not uh, without sin. But there's a there's a grounding in 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 this unchanging relationship with Jesus Christ, who is Himself unchanging. It's it's an outside of this world experience. It's counterintuitive to people in this world. They look at us like we're crazy sometimes. This if if this is striking, is it grating to you? It's striking you as that guy's not real. Well, no, I'm very real, and I'd be glad to explain it to you again if you if you contact me. Joy is in Jesus Christ. Joy is lasting. It's enduring. It is transcendent. It's it's apart from normal life. No matter how 
difficult our situation is, joy is enduring. Well, I mentioned ethics, ethical theory a minute ago. There's a there's a body of ethical theory, and they use all kinds of names to describe it, but it's basically hedonistic ethics. It's a theory that has as its goal the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. You you hear this sometimes. We sometimes call this utilitarianism. In ethical terms, this theory says that actions are ethically good when they bring about the desired outcome, and that outcome should be happiness. Maximum happiness for the maximum number of people. Even our Declaration of Independence states uh, that among our unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. We were, in a sense, founded on, on, on principles, at least in a sense, of utilitarianism. This pursuit of happiness has led us in all sorts of unhelpful, and some helpful, but many unhelpful directions over these past 250 plus years. We'll learn in this study that that joy is a much deeper and more achievable pursuit that is only found in Jesus Christ. Joy, you've heard, is something the world cannot give us. And yet we look to the world, to, to life, to to friends, to things, to to experiences, especially uh, uh, for joy. The world cannot give it to us. The world can't take it away from us either. Joy is in the Lord. The first miracle that Jesus performed significantly was turning water into wine at a wedding. This wedding is an indication of what we experience when the Lord changes our heart from what it was in sin to what it is in Christ. Jesus Christ is joy imparting. God is a joy imparting God. The entire Godhead, all of divinity is joy imparting. Well, Paul is really an unlikely author of a book, of a letter about joy, (laughs) a book in the Bible about joy. He's in chains. He's chained to guards day and night. He was held there in one room, as far as we know, for two years. He's awaiting trial. There's the possibility of a death sentence from Caesar. He knows this. And I, I don't know about you, but when, when I was growing up and I knew loom, uh, punishment was looming from my parents, it, it, it concern, I couldn't think about much of anything else. Well, Paul didn't have that problem. He was able to focus on rich theology on his love for this church, even while he's chained to a guard in one room for two years awaiting his trial. He had always wanted to visit Rome, but certainly not under these circumstances. He's, he's confined under house arrest. He's being demeaned by the other preachers in town, attacked by them. He's the last person in in human terms, to be writing about joy. He was the founding pastor of the church at Philippi. He was closest to this church of all the churches in the world at this time. And he learns from Epaphroditus that this church is struggling with division. Can you imagine? Paul's imprisoned. He can't go travel there. 
And so he's going to write a letter and send it back with Epaphroditus. And and by the way, Epaphroditus brought an offering and we'll, we'll get into all that later, but um, it wasn't sufficient. And so Epaphroditus said, you know what? Uh, th- this isn't enough money for you to live on, Paul. And so let me go to work while I'm here. I'll stay, I'll work, I'll earn some more money to complete this 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 offering for you. It's interesting in this book, among other things, and we'll get to all this in detail, but just to just to kind of whet your appetite, two women are called out in Philippians for being in disharmony. I think it's in chapter four. And you you know what it means. And 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 I, again, ladies, I'm not picking on you, but but guys, you know what it means if two women aren't getting along. You might be familiar with the old Southern expression, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This means that at least two households and probably their friends and and distant relatives are in turmoil. This means that there is, even regarding whatever that issue was, there is a split, a chasm in the church. Now, we also know that the Judaizers who had attacked Paul viciously are now trying to return the church, in a sense, to the Mosaic law. And antinomians, those who were completely against the law, are also attacking. They're saying that it doesn't matter how you live your life. After you're saved, you've been saved, and nothing else matters. We have, we have those people today. The Judaizers, who you'll remember from Romans, from Rome, are teaching Gentiles that they must follow Jewish customs to attain righteousness. This church is is under the gun. But Philippi is significant. It's a significant city. It's it's so connected to the Roman Empire that it was known as Little Rome. The believers in this church are facing opposition. This church is the most unlikely recipient of a letter about joy. They're facing opposition from outside of the church, from inside the church, from the culture, these conflicts among people inside. This is not the typical recipient of a letter about joy. So Paul's an atypical writer, and this church is an atypical recipient. We know that all joy comes through the Father. It's mediated through Jesus Christ and it is applied by the Holy Spirit. We can go to another book to see this, and that these the, you know, cross-referencing is sometimes helpful to me to, to, to examine Scripture with Scripture. I think that's a healthy thing for us to do. We see this in Galatians 5, to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desire, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. All joy, again, is found through Jesus Christ. There is no joy, no real joy, no lasting joy, no deep joy, no permanent joy that is outside of him or is not found in him. Joy is found in loving, living for, serving, obeying, testifying for Jesus Christ. Paul says that his whole life is Christ, but to die is gain. 
it's no wonder that Paul is experiencing joy in spite of his circumstances. Well, because we're another good cross-reference, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, because we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we can live above our circumstances as Paul is doing. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why in the world would we not be joyous? Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, we talk sometimes on this podcast about living our lives quorum Deo. Your church might talk about that sometimes. That is literally in Latin, before the face of God, in the presence of God, living life quorum Deo. And this this gives us joy to live life in the presence of God. It's not just God looking down on us and judging us, although there is that element but we have the joyous experience of living life, even on this earth, in the presence of God. This joy transcends our circumstances, and Paul models this beautifully. It is deep, abundant, and freely supplied. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus had joy in his heart, John 15, 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, there, there's a, a, a model, a pattern for us. Clearly something Paul would have considered on the night before he was crucified. Jesus had joy in his heart that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We see in Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9 this extreme joy. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of up." Rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or joy beyond your companions. Jesus is crowned with joy. He is the most joyful person in the universe, if I can say it this way. There's joy in the Holy Spirit in Romans 14, 17 through 19. Losses are real, though. I know that. You know that. We've all experienced it. If, if you need to recover your joy, Philippians is your book. This is your study. Well, Paul uh, is the writer, the Apostle Paul, of, of this book, uh, this letter to the church at Philippi. We, we know that. Uh, P- Paul Paul calls himself the the writer. Uh, He names himself Paul in the first verse of the letter, and he references Timothy uh, in in this verse, and and he he calls Timothy um, here and elsewhere his spiritual son. To Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, my true child in the faith. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was on Paul's missionary journey team that evangelized Philippi. We see this in Acts 16, and I I would just encourage you to to read, uh, I I guess, uh, verse 1 and then maybe verses 11 through 40 of of Acts 16. I'm not going to take your time now to 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 read all of that but it it just walks through this 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 missionary journey and this founding of of this church at Philippi. Silas was involved in this and you you might know that that Paul and Silas were were put in prison and the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. <laughs> So uh, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You know this story. And Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We, all, we are all here. And, and then the, as the story goes on, and then they, they, were, they were released, Paul and other, uh, other, the men who were with him. Therefore, come out now and go in peace, they say in verse Thirty-six, And Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And then the police reported back and they came and apologized and, and, and on, on they went and, and departed. Well, we're pretty sure Paul, as I said earlier, was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter. We get this from uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 13. He, he expected to be released. He was optimistic and, and to, to revisit Philippi. Paul's authorship of this book, you know, Paul get, Paul's ministry gets challenged all over by scholars now, but, but th- this, this really isn't a controversial um, matter. Serious scholars, although there are some frivolous ones who are very left-leaning, who seek to discredit Paul at every turn, but serious scholars don't question his authorship of, of, of this book. It's, it's referenced other places in, in uh, historical writing like, like Clement, Ignatius, Hermas, Justin Martyr, and others. They, they quote from the letter, and they assign its authorship to Paul. This is um, the, uh, it, it further born by the oldest list of New Testament writings, the Muratorian canon uh, later in the uh, second century, and the canon of Marcion um, includes uh, th- those include uh, the book of Philippians. Well, the city of Philippi was located about nine miles from the Aegean Sea, northwest of the island of Thasos. Neapolis served as the seaport. Philippi was a colony in Macedonia. We see that in Acts 16, 12. Thessalonica, Thessalonica was the capital of this province. The inhabitants of Philippi, the residents of Philippi, were legal Roman citizens who had the right to vote and govern themselves. Scholars believe the citizens of Philippi were somewhat anti-Semitic because there were no Jewish, there was no Jewish synagogue there, and, and there, there just were not uh, significant numbers of Jewish people. There were there were large numbers of Jews found in other Greek cities like Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth. Philippi was originally a Phoenician mining town because of its proximity to gold mines. Bet you didn't know that. 
to, to gold mines located in nearby mountains and on the island of Thasos. Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, took the city from the empire of Thrace and renamed it after himself. So the name came from Philip of Macedon. The city grew in prominence as a Roman colony because it was on the main road from Rome to the province of Asia. The city of Philippi, you might wonder about what, what's going on there today. It lies in ruins. It's been ex- excavated and a market, a large arched gateway, and an amphitheater dating back to Roman times have been found. It's believed that the population of Philippi consisted largely of Roman military personnel who retired there after spending time on duty in the city. This is a pattern that we even see today where in a military town, sometimes like uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida, uh, uh, Patrick Air Force Base there, or, or Pensacola Naval Air Station, you'll have, you'll have officers who go through those places, live there while they're on duty, and they remember it so fondly that when they retire, they go back and retire. And that's, that's really what we believe um, that part of the population of Philippi came from. It's a, a Roman military personnel who retired. The, the Romans in the area possessed the wealth uh, rather than the native Greeks, and, and the Jewish population was small, that we know. Historians tell us that, historians tell us that a, a, a weekly prayer meeting was held outside the city on a river bank initially. Paul first brought the gospel to Europe during his second missionary journey, and the journey included a guy named Silas, You'll see those references in Acts and Timothy and Luke, Acts 15.36 through 16.5, if you care to read the history. Paul received a vision directing the team to go to Macedonia, where Luke joined them. It appears that Lydia and her household believed and were baptized as perhaps the first converts in Philippi. The next significant event in Philippi was Paul casting out a demon, a demonic spirit, from a slave girl. Her masters were enraged, and because remember, she, she was a, a money earner for the family, and they seized Paul and Silas, and that's the story I read part of earlier from Acts. They dragged them into the city before the officials and falsely accused them, and the crowd beat them and cast them into prison because of the antagonism that they had, the crowd in Philippi, toward the Jews. You know the rest of the story. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, sang, and communicated their faith to other prisoners. An earthquake shook the prison's foundations, opened the doors, and loosed the chains from the walls. The jailer was fearful and was about to commit suicide when Paul stopped him. I read that verse a minute ago. He then led the jailer and his household to Christ. Paul was released the next day. He revealed that both he and Silas had Roman citizenship and that they had been wrongfully beaten, and that kind of changed the way they were handled. They went to Lydia's house, ministered to the believers there, and left for Thessalonica. They left Luke behind in Philippi, apparently. The young church at Philippi thus began with a converted businesswoman, a former demonic soothsayer, a jailer, and perhaps some prisoners. (laughs) What a beginning of a church. Paul and the church at Philippi maintained close contact. The church sent gifts to Paul at least two times during his ministry in Thessalonica. 
It appears that Silas was sent by Paul from Athens to do additional work in Philippi. We get that from Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians 3. During his third missionary journey, Paul went into the providence of Macedonia with a stop in Philippi. After three months in Corinth, he visited Macedonia and Philippi before he left for Jerusalem. You know about that story from the book of Romans. Luke rejoined Paul for his final contact with Philippi. Recall, you'll recall that Galatia and Corinth were home, home base for the Judaizers. You can read a section of Acts 20 about uh, their travels during this time. The Philippian church heard of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, can you imagine, through some unknown means. Word of mouth was the way the news got around then. And the church authorized Epaphroditus to go to Rome to confer with Paul and to present him with a monetary gift for his financial needs. We see that in, in that reference in Philippians 4, verse 10 and uh, 14 through 18. They wanted firsthand information to reduce their anxiety. They were anxious. They loved Paul and his ministry, and they had significant concerns for him, for they thought he might be killed by the Roman government. Epaphroditus saw that Paul's financial needs were, were greater than the offering he brought, so he stayed in Rome to work to raise more money for Paul. I mean, that, that is a real friend. He became very ill and almost died, Epaphroditus did. So this is now misery upon misery, worry upon worry. Word of his illness, Epaphroditus' illness, reached Philippi and caused now a new concern for this church. Sometimes it feels like at our church, my goodness, people are suffering and struggling and it's just bad news upon bad news. The faithfulness of these people in their joy is, is, is commendable. It's astounding, really. Well, Epaphroditus became distressed when the church knew, when he knew that the church knew about his illness. But God healed Epaphroditus uh, sufficiently so that he was able to return to Philippi. Paul sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi so the church might rejoice at his return. Paul worked hard to encourage the churches, particularly this one. He used this occasion, that is Epaphroditus traveling back to Philippi, to write this epistle, and he sent it to Philippi by Epaphroditus. Paul was confident that his acquittal was imminent, along with his release. He, he references this in verse 25 of chapter 1 and verse 24 of chapter 2. Scholars believe that the letter was written near the end of Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, that confidence that he had is kind of indicative of that. Sometime around AD 59 to 61, if you're looking to kind of place this writing among all the other historical events in Paul's writing, you, you can kind of place it in the AD 59 to 61 range. Although some scholars speculate that Paul might have written the letter from a prison in Ephesus rather than Rome, but Several references to Rome lead scholars to believe that Paul was there when he wrote this epistle. So Luke's whereabouts, Paul's sending of, of Timothy to Philippi, a reference to the Praetorian Guard and Caesar's household and the, the month-long travel time from Rome to Philippi caused scholars to, to question his location, but we're confident that he was in Rome unless 
somehow additional archaeological evidence or historical evidence surfaces. Well, the purpose of the letter is interesting. Paul learned about the spiritual needs of the church at Philippi through conversation with Epaphroditus. I, I often in my teaching, I, I, I tell young people, I know I sound like an old guy and I am, but, but just the wisdom we get from conversation. Sitting on the, the porch with your grandfather is kind of how I reference it. I sort of stereotype it. But that's how, that's how word traveled back then. And Epaphroditus and Paul talked. And, um, but there were others who came to Rome with the report of the church's concern. And, and uh, they, they got word back to the church about the health of Epaphroditus. Paul wanted to relieve the church's uh, the anxiety over the circumstances of his imprisonment in writing this letter. Paul assured them that their fears of his ministry coming to an end, coming to an abrupt stop at least, were unfounded, and that God was using the the this this whole episode of him being imprisoned for the advancement of the gospel. Isn't that something that the guy in prison is comforting the people who aren't? Among the other reasons for the writing, there was growing disunity among the members of this church. Paul was concerned about those I mentioned earlier who were attacking this church from within and outside. Paul appealed to them for humility and unity. He also informed them of a a possible imminent visit by Timothy, which would really encourage them. He explained the reasons for Epaphroditus' sickness and, and his healing to encourage them, and he warned against the deceitful tactics and, and doctrines of the Judaizers. Paul had had his run-ins with them by now, primarily in Galatia and Corinth, but other places as well. And then, and then he admonished these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to, to maintain spiritual and sisterly unity in chapter 4. He prescribed truth that would give the members of the church mental and emotional stability to replace their anxiety also in chapter four. And he expressed thankfulness for their financial assistance. And he shared greetings with them all. Paul was warm and loving. He gently rebuked the the perfectionists of the saints from among them. He he warned against Judaizing propagandists. He he uses more severe language in reference to, to sensualists and materialists. He, he writes to encourage his readers of the, the conduct of the Christian life, the, the how to conduct the Christian life in suffering, in, in witness, in the, in the cultivation of joy and peace and of high and holy thoughts. So several features of the letter, just to talk about here in closing, Paul uses personal pronouns. Uh, first person singular, reflecting his intimate relationship between himself and this church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is referenced, as you would expect, nine times in various ways in this letter. It's known as the letter or epistle of joy. The words joy and rejoice are found 18 times. The theme of the book is found in rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Philippians for four. This has one of the greatest Christological passages, that is, speaking to the person, nature, and role of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. 
It's really uh, found in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but just listen to the beauty of this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and we'll talk a lot about that phrase. That's an important one to understand. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage speaks of Christ's eternal deity, incarnation, humiliation, death, resurrection, and exaltation via his ascension. We'll talk about the Greek words. It's, it, it's just... It, it, it's that that he emptied himself is really just talking about he he surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He didn't he didn't alter his divine attributes. God didn't during this period, but he surrendered the the divine exercise, the independent exercise of those divine attributes. The letter really captivates Paul's motivation for ministry, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul wanted Christ to be magnified in his body, whether through living or dying for him. May that be true of all of us. If I've discussed something in this introduction to this letter to the church at Philippi, this this book called Philippians in the New Testament, or if you do some reading, if you say, I want to check and see if that guy on that podcast knows what he's talking about. I encourage you to read this letter. It only has four chapters. You can read it in 15 minutes. And I I would urge you to do so. And then contact me if you have questions. I would be delighted to help uh, or refer you to someone who can help you in your local environment. Uh, You can reach me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com or through our contact form at johnwarrenmedia.com. I look forward to being with you next time. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to jump into this, this letter. We're going to talk about the introduction and then, and then another, another section um, where, where Paul is, is expressing a heartfelt sentiment to these people who he loves dearly. What a joy it is. What a blessing it is for us to observe this. I, I feel like we're in a drone kind of flying over the heads of these people and we get to see what they experienced in 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 this time. You know, you know a beautiful truth here is that is that God is the same. He is immutable. So he is exactly the same. The God that Paul is talking about, the Jesus Christ that Paul is talking about, the Godhead, the Trinity that Paul is talking about, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are exactly the same today as they were then and will be the same forever. What a beautiful promise. I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas 
through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.